Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Interviews with business owners, industry leaders, and tax experts sharing how the IC Disc can benefit your bottom line profits. Check out the show notes at icdiscshow.com. This show is brought to you by the IC Disc Alliance. Discover how the premier IC Disc consulting firms support you at icdisc.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the IC Disc Show. My guest today is Al Deaver. Al is an intellectual property attorney in Houston. Al has an interesting background. His undergraduate degree is actually in mechanical engineering, and then he, uh, he paired that with a law degree. And so he has a background that is very useful for very technical aspects of intellectual property. So we talked about some things for exporters to be aware of, getting patents granted in different markets, and a variety of other things to keep in mind when a company is looking to protect their intellectual property. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Al. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thanks. So I've been looking forward to having you on. I'm glad our schedule's finally lined up. So let's, I'm a chronological thinker. So let's start at the beginning. Are you from Houston originally? I'm not originally. I was born in Shreveport, so I'm a Yankee to at least those people in southern Louisiana. <laughs> but, I, sure. but I got here when I was about four years old, so pretty close. Okay. And then grew up in Houston then? Yes, mostly on the west side, and I've been in Houston most of my life. All right. Well, where did you go to college, undergrad, before you went to law school? Texas A&M, the only college in Texas. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? You're just pulling my leg, aren't you? Of course not. Oh, well, as a proud graduate of the University of Texas, you know, but I'm saying, I'm just, I'm, I don't know if I'm embarrassed to admit I've interviewed more Aggies than I have Longhorns, so <laughs> I guess that should tell me something. Maybe I went to the wrong school. Well, you know the old joke, what do you call an Aggie four years after graduation? Yeah, the silly one that I won't actually answer it because I think it's... <laughs> I'll, I, I'll let you off. <laughs> but you can go ahead and answer it yourself just for the guests who don't know the joke. Well, boss, of course. <laughs> of course. So what did you study at A&M? I got a degree, a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering, focusing on metallurgy. Okay. And then you decided, I guess at some point, that you wanted to go to law school and kind of combine your undergraduate engineering abilities with law. Was that the thinking? Exactly. I actually practiced in industry as a consulting metallurgical engineer for about five years. And went to law school at night. And at the toward the end of law school, I joined an intellectual property law firm here in town. Started okay. practicing IP law. Okay. And then you went to law school at South Texas, right? Right in Houston. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it was that probably was- hard to go to night school with a law school not in Houston, I would imagine. Well, U of H at that time was thinking they didn't want to have a night program. So it was safer to go to South Texas. Oh, because you didn't want to. School. You didn't want them to shut the program halfway, shut down the program when you were halfway through. Exactly. Okay. So 
you then you worked at a few different law firms, and then at some point you you struck out on your own with your partner. Is that right? Yeah, my law partner Bob McCon. We've worked together since about well the early 1990s, and I guess a group of us in about 2012 decided that the the legal conflicts, the subject matter conflicts that you get with large law firms, law firms that have you know corporate sections and other business sections. It was just getting too oppressive, so a bunch of us struck out on our own to open a smaller IP boutique so that we could focus more particularly on the kind of clients that we like to service. And what are what is a typical type of client that you feel like you're well-suited to serve? Well, with our platform, the size of our platform and what we like to do, we're looking to service you know smaller and mid-sized companies. Okay. Uh, in both, you know, enforcement and defense of their intellectual property, the acquisition of their intellectual property, and then just general client counseling in kind of technology areas. So we're at, at a smaller firm. We're I think we're better situated to become more intimately involved with our clients. Yeah, that makes sense because if Intel needs a an IP attorney, they're probably going with the, you know, more the name brand larger firm, I would presume. Right. They've got an in-house stable of IP attorneys as well. And then they tend to use the larger firms for a variety of reasons. And we sometimes work with those types of clients along with their larger life law firms, mainly because of our you know, experience and technical expertise. But for the most part, we focus on small and mid-sized clients. Yeah. And I guess because the idea is they'd be kind of lost in the shuffle at a big firm. Right, or that's the right. concern, maybe. And conflicts can rear its ugly head and kick the smaller client to the curb in favor of the larger client. So, oh, sure. Platform, you know, has its place. Yeah. Well, I know that was always the, the the kind of the rumor in Houston was that the big oil companies would hire basically every you know large law firm and even medium sized law firm in town just so that they could prevent those firms from ever being on the other side. Right. That's the theory. And it's yeah. practiced. Right. So other than being kind of better able, better served, and I'm guessing it's that more personal service that you can provide that smaller midsize company. Right. You know, in a smaller shop that, that we run, we can be flexible on how we bill on you know whether we do a, a contingent interest in the case, other types of you know structures that make it more palatable for smaller firms and mid-sized firms, and you're not under the same you know billing pressures that the large firms have to keep their profits per partner up. So right. having you know at, at this stage of our practice and having gone through that drill, I think we're this firm you know we're all at the stage where we really like to spend quality time with the clients, get to know their business help them through the you know the many pitfalls we've seen over the years in a way that's not just so pressure laden and and profit driven. Yeah, that I can appreciate that. So I love stories and I think that's a great way to learn. What can we talk about some examples of kind of client cases that I mean obviously you won't share the client name but maybe just some interesting cases or stories that would illustrate the capabilities of your firm. Are there are there a couple examples that might come to mind? Sure. 
Let's see. I guess most recently, we completed a representation of a small business consulting shop who found out that one of its clients, a fairly good client, a well-known petroleum refiner here in Houston, uh, had improperly used its copyrighted refinery troubleshooting course for their own purposes and benefit. Yeah, When we found out about this, the client approached us and we sued the refiner here in Houston for copyright infringement. And we obtained some fairly damning evidence during discovery and were able to reach an out-of-court resolution for that client. So I think that's a, you know, that's a, I like that example because that was a, almost a David versus Goliath situation. Yeah. But the, David was clearly in the right. He had copyrighted his materials and had, this was a good client of his in, in other teaching areas. And they just had some bad employees that did the wrong thing. And you know, we were able to push it through and get the vindication for the client. Now is now I'm guessing that probably didn't help their relationship with that client when you sue them, or was it a case of there were just some rogue employees and the rest of the organization didn't hold it against them, or do you know kind of what it, the it's final? It's probably somewhere was? in between. It's probably okay. somewhere in between. I mean, it was, uh, you know, my, our client always has the feeling that this was a good client of theirs, and it was financially over the years, and this was evidently an outlier. And so whether the relationship is irretrievably, you know, frustrated, only time will tell, but it shouldn't have to be that way. Okay. Now I like that story. What's another one that comes to mind? Well, on the other side of the fence, we work on a variety of technologies with clients to get protection, for example, patent protection. Uh, We're working on some interesting orthopedic implants, knee and shoulder, for example. My partner, Bob McCon, he's working on some very interesting truth detection type algorithms with some clients. So those are always interesting and funny. We get to use our technical background in those areas. Let's see. We also completed a Zoom arbitration. Our client was based out of Tennessee. We were here in Houston, obviously. The defendant, respondent in the arbitration was in Germany, and the arbitrating panel was in London. And so that was conducted over about four days across the Zoom platform. Really? With live wit- yes, with live witnesses. And it worked, out, it worked out quite well, both technically and for the client. And so that's a, that was more of a breach of contract type action, but heavily steeped in technology. And was that done by Zoom because of the timing with COVID or was it, would it have been done just because of the logistical challenges of it? If it had not been for COVID, I think it would have been harder for the panel to not require in-person arbitration. But mm-hmm. because of COVID and because of the geography issues, I think the decision was fairly easy for the tribunal to make. And is that is that capability or option has that survived covid like is that still was that like kind of a learning lesson for new ways to do things or was it viewed as just a temporary thing and then they'll go back to the old ways of doing business or somewhere in between i think it's somewhere in between i think a lot of courts state and federal in in this region 
are conducting many of the hearings that were in the past done in person by Zoom. They're very effective. I think we will see in, in the legal profession that depositions uh, will be conducted much more often by Zoom. Mm. That eliminates the, the cost of travel, which is a big issue for depositions, especially in you know, large cases where witnesses are scattered around the country, or around the world. So, no, I think, you know, I don't know how to say it correctly, but COVID has affected a change in the way certainly the legal profession will conduct some of its formerly in-person hearings. Trials are a different matter. It's going to be there's going to be very few attorneys and very few judges, I think, that are going to want to conduct a jury trial by Zoom. I think sure. you've heard some of the horror stories. But during COVID, we had a Zoom bench trial. It was a false advertising case, and it lasted close to 30 days across Zoom, and it was surprisingly seamless. Hmm, That's interesting. And I guess the other benefit of doing it on Zoom is the built-in recording feature, right? Because a regular deposition, it's typically video recorded, in my understanding. Is that correct? You would think that, right? And it, but it's been my, our experience that that has yet to receive the uh, the use that it should. For example, both mm. in that bench trial and in the arbitration, uh, it was required that there be a separate court reporter to take down the testimony in addition to the Zoom recording. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. Just, I think that's just inertia in the legal system. Sure. Not wanting to get away from the classic court reporter. Well, plus from the the judge's perspective, he can probably read a deposition faster than he can watch a video. True, but you know, today with in most court reporting settings like depositions or trials, you have a real time feed where you can see where you get to see on an iPad, for example. The testimony, like closed caption testimony is what it is, right? Oh, and, okay. But Zoom, but Zoom doesn't have that facility. Like WebEx and Teams, I believe they all have the facility for a type of real-time feed. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Well, any other cases that come to mind that, that, that might be different than the ones you've discussed already? Oh, I'm sure I could think of some, but those are probably the high points for the day. Okay. So, you know, as you know, my clients are involved in exporting goods mostly and and some engineering and architectural services to countries outside the U.S. through the use of the ICDISC tax incentive. But, you know, it's not something that I hear my clients talk much about IP. Does that mean IP doesn't really come into play in international business or have I just not paid it? Have I just not been privy to that aspect of their business? I suspect it just hasn't bubbled to the surface in your conversations because IP issues tend to infect, and I think that's the right word, to infect all types of business transactions. And it certainly plays a role in exporting products and services outside of the U.S. and the corollary of importing products and services into the U.S. So no, IP, I think, is certainly... Uh, involved in your clients exporting products and services. Hmm. It certainly can be. 
Sure. Does that, does the international piece bring into more, I can't think of the uh, forgeries, not forgeries. What do you call like counterfeiting? That's the word. Is counterfeiting seem to be more prevalent because of just the dynamics of how that industry, those industries work, or is there like domestic counterfeiting as well? Well, there's certainly domestic counterfeiting, but I think if we're talking about the exporting from the United States point of view, trademarks are probably, well, patents and trademarks, two key pieces of intellectual property that I think your clients are informed about or would be worried about. I think a key issue to understand is intellectual property rights are territorial. So there's a United States patent, there's a Mexican patent, there's a Canadian patent you can get. So most countries of the world have patent systems and trademark systems and copyright systems. And so a U.S. patent or a U.S. trademark on your product in the U.S. doesn't provide you protection in, say, China, if you're exporting to China or Germany, if you're exporting to Germany. And so there's some horror stories about people trying to export their U.S. product into other countries. And there's a trademark issue such as There's somebody with an existing trademark that's similar that prevents you from using that trademark on your good in that country. There's also some kind of humorous translation problems with trademarks from U.S. to other countries. Sure. And, of course, there's potential patent issues. So do any of the countries in the world have anything like a reciprocity agreement? where they automatically honor patents from other countries? Or is it very siloed that they each country has its own you know, IP system? So I'm going to answer that question and say there's really no reciprocity. I mean, there, there is, think of it this way. A U.S. patent protects, gives you rights in the U.S., its possession in territories. And so to the extent you want to call that reciprocity, if you get a Chinese patent, you can extend it to Hong Kong, for example, right? Or okay. Or a UK patent, you can extend it. So there are those types that they are very limited. And so I okay. think the general rule is, is just to consider that, you know, every country is an island and has their own intellectual property rules and offices and regulations. Okay. And have you had the opportunity to get involved with some other countries' IP system? Yes. As, you know, part of the practice of most IP attorneys is if you're seeking protection in the U.S., either patent, trademark, copyright, whatever, and your client has an international or an extranational footprint, you'll want to find out where it may make sense for that client to get protection in other countries. It's prohibitively expensive, impossible almost to get protection everywhere, right? But your Mm -hmm. main markets, like the main market you might sell into or the main market you think a counterfeit might come from, those are the regions you might consider to look at for corollary patent protection or trademark protection or copyright protection. Okay. Now, would a, would like a Fortune 50, you know, type of company, you know, like a, U.S.-based technology company, might they have the the tolerance for spending the money to get the copyright in every single country that they might do business? Or is it even too cumbersome for even a large company like that? 
Well, copyright, probably not so much, but patents and trademarks, certainly. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah. Thanks for the correction. uh, Certainly not in every country or most countries. Let me just give you a kind of a generic example for for the exploration companies, the the oil patch companies here in, in this region. It's not uncommon for the large players when they seek patent protection on a new technology to also seek protection in maybe four to six other foreign countries, right? Brazil, Mexico, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And there, there are facilities, both on the trademark side of the fence and the patent side of the fence, kind of clearing houses where you can file a single application and it is preliminarily reviewed and then ultimately, though, you have to make a decision, well, I want to pursue this application in, in Europe, for example, this region, the European region, or I want to pursue it in Brazil, or I want to pursue it in Mexico. So there, there are some clearinghouses, that I'll call them, to help get foreign protection so you don't have to file individually in every country. Mm-hmm. That can get very cumbersome. Sure. Okay. Well, that's, that's helpful. And I think my saying copyright when I meant patent or trademark is, I, I think, uh, reflective of the fact that for the lay person, you know, IP and copyright or trademark, it just kind of all sort of runs together and seems, you know, kind of synonymous. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail of just specifically the different types of IP? Sure. So let's start with patents. That almost exclusively around the world is a grant. And what I mean by that is a company or an individual does not have patent rights until the government says they have patent rights. So in the United States, if you have a technical invention or a new plant invention or even an ornamental design, three types of patents in the United States, utility, plant, and design, you file an application, the patent office examines it, decides whether it's, I'll just use the word inventive. Okay. And if it passed muster, then they will allow or grant you rights. Now, the curious thing that most people don't understand about patents, and this is pretty, pretty much true worldwide, it's a negative right. It allows the patent holder to prevent others, for example, their competitors, from practicing their invention. It's not a positive right. It doesn't give the patent owner the right to actually sell his product in the market because there may be other patents out there already that could block his technology. Okay. You could have have patentable technology, a patent from the United States government, but you have to get permission from a competitor who owns a dominating patent to sell your product in the market. So it's a negative okay. right, a right to exclude. And then uh, trademarks are a protection for your brand, for your source, for your goodwill. The idea is if you market your product under a trademark, like an Apple iPhone, people will come to associate the quality of that iPhone with the brand name Apple. Mm-hmm. And that goodwill is your trademark right. 
and it protects you from someone using a confusingly similar brand or trademark. In other words, writing on your coattails, writing on your goodwill. If they're using a confusingly similar brand or mark, it's likely to cause confusion in the market as to the source of the goods or the affiliation between the parties or sponsorship, then you have a way to challenge their use of that confusingly similar brand so that it doesn't hurt your goodwill and your business reputation. Okay. When you look at a magazine or an article and you see the little TM symbol, Mm -hmm. that is telling the world you're claiming common law copyright, I'm sorry, common law trademark rights in that brand. What I mean by common law is, unlike a patent, the moment you begin using your brand on your goods in commerce, you start generating that business goodwill or those trademark rights. You can go to the government and have those and register those rights if you meet the requirements. And you can get a federal registration here in the United States. You can get a Texas trademark. You can get a Colorado trademark. So unlike the patent system, which is only the federal government, the trademark system is both federal and state. And so you can have a federal trademark registration and a Texas registration. And Hmm. when you get a registration, you can use the circle R symbol. Okay. So that's the difference, the registered trademark versus the the common law TM. Exactly. Okay. And then a copyright is a protection of a work, an original expression of authorship. So, you know, think of the Mona Lisa painting. That was an original expression of authorship. And so that painting was copyrightable. When you write a technical manual for the product you're exporting, that technical manual is an expression, an original expression that is subject to copyright. When your clients create architectural plans, in the United States, we have architectural copyrights. So copyrights for the drawings, the plans, and copyrights for the actually built building. Hmm. So those original expressions are copyrightable. Now, in contrast to patents, you know, it's in a, with patents, it's one riot, one ranger. You only get one patent for one invention. In the copyright world, if you put two people in separate rooms and say, I want you both to paint a portrait of a seated one with a half smile on her face, and if both artists identically paint the Mona Lisa, even though they're identical, they are separately copyrightable to each author because it's an original Mm. expression. So those are basically the three different flavors. And then you have trade secrets, which I think are fairly self-explanatory. Those are competitively valuable information or ideas or things that you keep under your hat to give you a competitive advantage. So like on the trade secrets, I think there's a standard, like if a company doesn't use, you know, doesn't take like reasonable efforts to try to safeguard that, then that would like weaken their position, right? Absolutely. If you get into a trade secret battle, you're going to, the owner of the trade secret is going to have the burden to demonstrate that they took those steps reasonably necessary to maintain the information as confidential and secret. You can't claim 
you can't claim a trade secret in your manufacturing process if you let the public walk through your manufacturing plant. Oh, right. Yeah, and I know there's usually another clause there because I've signed, I don't know how many NDAs I've signed in my lifetime that talks about if the trade secret like becomes public knowledge, you're not on the part of the you know, perpetrator, let's say, then right. that basically collapses that protection. Exactly. And that's a, we have that corollary or that circumstance with patents. So when a client files a patent application, it's held in secrecy at the patent office for at least 18 months. And so during that time, they'll execute non-disclosure agreements with clients and potential customers. But once that patent publishes as an application, application or is granted as a patent, all of those details become public. And so under most NDAs at that point, that publication of that information means that information disclosed in the patent, published patent or application is no longer part of the NDA. Right. It basically like it almost expires, if you will, or I'm sure there's a better legal term, right? What's the term? It just, I guess, enters the public domain or? Yeah, I think the basic concept is the party that signs the NDA to agrees to keep confidential information confidential doesn't want to be in a worse position than the party that didn't sign the NDA when oh, that information publishes, right? Right, right. Why would they agree to wear handcuffs that their competitors don't have to wear? Right. That makes sense. And then what's the, uh, is there a rule of thumb duration for these three types of IP, the patents, the trademarks, the copyright? So trademarks, I guess, are the easy ones. And I don't know if it's a good analogy or not, but I always tell my clients, trademarks are like pedaling a bicycle. As long as you're pedaling the bicycle, you're moving forward. As long as you're using the mark on your goods in commerce, you're generating trademark rights. So in that sense, trademark rights can be forever. If now, you, as long as you continue to use, use it the mark on the goods in interstate commerce. Now, there, you know, there are obviously some hairs that grew up around that. You've got to police your mark. You can't let it become generic. For example, people have probably heard the stories that, you know, aspirin used to be a trademark, but it's become generic. Escalator used to be a trademark, you know, escalator brand moving sidewalks. That's what the product was, a moving sidewalk. So you've got to police your mark against becoming generic, against being infringed and used by others. But potentially they could last forever. You do so, if you register the trademark, you do have to comply with like every 10 years, you have to prove that it's still in use. But uh, yeah, so Coca Cola right. seems like a good example, right? They've had that trademark for, I would imagine, a long time. I think over 100 years, sure. Yeah, but the fact that they keep using it, in fact, I have a can of Coca Cola right here in front of me. And sure enough, right at the bottom of the A in cola, there's the registered trademark sign. Right. And, you know, Coca-Cola is kind of a, an example of entering a new market with your brand. The story is that when Coca-Cola was becoming well-known worldwide, some interlopers in China started reselling Coca-Cola under a Chinese character brand. Okay. And, of course, the Chinese character brand 
was understood to mean bite the wax tadpole. Okay. Like, and when Coke was finally able to extend into China, they learned of that problem and they created the correct translation of characters that they wanted for Coca-Cola, which would mean happiness in the mouth. Okay. So, you know, trademarks can be words like we're used to, Coca-Cola, but when you enter countries like Japan and China, where they have character-driven language as well, you will get a word trademark, for example, and a character-based trademark. And you've got to be careful on translating trademarks into other countries. Sure. But I would imagine in the, the countries that use you know, a letter-based language, I'm guessing Coca-Cola probably, they use that same brand in France and Italy, they don't like try to translate it to the Italian version of Coca-Cola, right? I think that's true. I think they do use different brands, perhaps in, in India, but I'm not going to claim to be an expert on Coke's trademarks. Okay. But there, there are other aspects. For example, in all in English speaking countries, but the United States, Electrolux would use the trademark slogan, nothing sucks like an Electrolux. Okay. The connotation of that in the United States was not a good brand. Right. So, so clearly, you know, entering the United States with Electrolux, they decided, well, we're not going to use that slogan in the U.S. I see. So patents, or I mean, trademarks do not have a automatic or a scheduled expiration period. What about patents? So it used to be that patents in the United States were 17 years from filing, but we harmonized the rules with basically the rest of the world. So now, and I'm talking about the standard utility patent, it has Mm -hmm. a life of 20 years. I'm sorry, I said that backwards, 17 years from grant. It's 20 years from filing today. So the United States utility patent has a life of 20 years from filing with some exceptions. There can be some extensions of that term. For example, in the medical arts, if you're having to undergo FDA analysis, and so you may have and that takes protection longer than three years. Right. And so you, get, uh, you may get some term adjustment because you spent too much time playing with the FDA. Right. And there are other adjustments like that. But basically, it's 20 years from filing. And many of the industrialized nations follow that. Yes. That standard. Uh, yes exactly. And that's why we changed it to be harmonious with much of the rest of the world. Correct. And we also changed, we were originally, you can think back to the likes of Henry Ford, individual inventor. So the way the U.S. patent system grew up, it was kind of based to favor individual inventors. And so we had what was called a first to invent system. And so the first person to invent, regardless of whether they were the first to file, would be the owner of that technology. The rest of the world tended to use a first to file system, which you can imagine tends to favor larger corporations who can marshal huge staffs to get patents on file as soon as possible. Right. But we did harmonize, we did change our system from a first to invent to a first to file system. Okay. And what about copyrights? My understanding was always that it was the duration or the lifespan of the artist 
plus some period of time after their death. Is that correct or is it more complicated than that? That is correct. And it's more complicated than that. And every time I want to know the precise date, I have to go back to the code and look it up because copyright law is because it has such a wide application, has a lot of twists and turns and permutations. And you said it correctly. That's the general rule. But it's always good to go back to code and be exactly sure on that particular property, what you're talking about. Yeah. And I guess the is the thinking behind that, that the heirs of, you know, Benjamin Franklin shouldn't be granted, you know, basically a royalty in perpetuity just because they're related to Ben Franklin and he wrote a book 300 years ago. Right. Right. Okay. Well, and the Constitution says, so remember, patent protection and copyright protection are mentioned in the Constitution, not in an amendment, but in the Constitution. Oh, they are. Clause 1, Section 8, Clause 8. And in the Constitution, it says, for limited times, Congress can protect copyrights, their expression of authors, and inventions of inventors. Wow, so I did not realize that was only be for a limited time. Yeah, I didn't realize it was in the Constitution. I mean, that was really well, a re- remarkable document to to be general enough to have some durability, yet specific enough in certain areas. That's pretty amazing that they had the foresight to use that language as it related to that. I agree. And that's why you see, you know, patents being at the federal level, copyrights being at the federal level, whereas trademarks not mentioned in the Constitution exist at both the state and federal level in the United States. Was that probably because the concept of a trademark just didn't exist in the 1700s? I think the concept of the guilds goes back quite a ways, and that's related to trademarks. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I have a good a good story on why trademarks were not mentioned in the Constitution. Okay. Boy, this has really been a wonderful education in intellectual property. Why don't we talk about you know, any type of pre-exporting due diligence a company might want to do? You'd mentioned, you know, maybe picking select markets to get protection in those markets. Are there things that a company should do before they start exporting just to make sure that they're going to be protected? Sure. So, you know, I think we all have to realize you can't, you usually can't be everywhere you want to be at once. So typically you're going to have a strategy for marching outside the United States into other countries. But you can always typically plan ahead of time on where you do want to end up. So let's say you want to end up in Germany, China, Japan, Spain. You can, on the trademark side of the fence, like we talked about a little while ago, you can make sure that if you're going to brand your product as you export it, that you're not going to run into trouble importing, having that product imported into the country. Because most countries that we want to play with have an analog to our International Trade Commission. So you okay. know, when a product is coming into the United States, if there's a trademark issue, if there's a patent issue, if there's a copyright issue, the goods can be interdicted at the border. And so okay. you, you want to make sure that when your product and services leave the United States and are, are arriving at port in, in the other country, 
that there's not going to be problems at the border. And typically what you'll do is, or at least you know, I've worked with clients where you'll find a partner in the country to work with, right? It may not be the U.S. exporter that actually moves the product in the other country. So you'll have a partner who will work with you on doing that. And assuming they're you know, playing on a level playing field with you, they're going to run those traps and they can help you run those traps with the legal counsel in that country on, on the trademark issues, on any potential patent issues there may be. And by patent issues, I mean there may be a Spanish patent or there may be a Japanese patent that you need to worry about. The other side of that coin is <clears throat> have your U.S. team look at getting you patent protection in those markets that make sense. And I think like we discussed a little while ago, you tend to want to focus on where will your, where's your main markets? Where will your main sales and revenue be generated? And you can also look at what countries would a competitor look to make a knockoff of my product? If I can get patent protection in those countries where the competing product is likely to be made, I can stop the exporting of the competing product from that country to other markets. Okay. Right. And so, you know, as, as far as due diligence, it's just trying to plan ahead to make sure you know where the landmines are, because there's always going to be landmines. And so then it's just a matter of figuring out how best to navigate through the minefield so that you can export your product with as little uh, heartache and frustration as possible. Yeah. Are there, if, do you have any sort of examples of situations like that, that, that either turned out well or not so well? So we, we represent a, a manufacturer of, of consumer type products. And one of the big markets is in Asia. And so we run these types of you know, due diligence exercises fairly regularly. We routinely file patents on the company's improvements in those Asian markets. We are, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things, and this is not precisely, I think, you know, exporting from the U.S., but if you have any clients that also manufacture product, for example, in China, and then want to export from China to other countries, you have to be very careful because a China is notorious for people getting your trademark that you're going to use, say, in France or the U.S. on that product, getting that trademark in China. And once they get that trademark in China, they can prevent you from exporting the good you had made in China to other markets. Oh, Wow. Yeah, it's a, China is a strange, strange player in that regard. So there are, there's a variety of those types of issues that depending on the, you know, what the client is exactly involved in, whether they're, if they're not branding the goods, if the goods are unbranded, that's one thing. If the goods are, you know, let's just call them commodity products that really don't worry about the patent space. Okay. Well, that's, you know, that's another issue that's fairly easy to deal with. But if they're outside of those two kind of you know, curb side areas, if there's branding going on, if there's potential technology development going on, then running the traps on the individual countries because of the territorial nature of IP, in the long run, 
saves money. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Is I know, you know, historically China's been notorious for, you know, weak uh IP protection, you know, for foreign countries doing business in China. Is is your sense that's improved or not over the last twenty years? With that standard, I think I can say yes. I think it has improved over the last twenty years. Does it have room to improve more? Yes. You know, I think part of the problem is, and if we look at patents that have a life of 20 years, uh, the way I look at it, it's the closing door policy. If you don't file your patent in China today, well, you're never going to have a bat to swing. If you do mm. file it, you'll get a bat. Now, whether you want to swing it, whether you can swing it, how hard you can hit, those are all issues that are going to change with the passage of time. But if you I don't... See file it there originally, you've basically lost whatever game there was. Okay. And you know, that also brings to mind you know, kind of a, another question that I have, and this may be more of a tax question than an IP question. Do you know why so many multinationals will hold their IP like in Ireland? Yeah, that they'll carve out the IP and hold that in a, in one country. Do you are you familiar with that, or is that really more of a tax question? I can answer both of those. Yes, I am familiar with that, and that does exceed my bandwidth since I'm not a tax lawyer. But it is not uncommon for companies with large IP portfolios to create what let's just call them an IP holding company mm-hmm. that really has no employees. It's just a an entity, a legal entity to hold the IP assets because, and then you license the operating companies in U.S. under these patents, the operating company in Brazil under these patents. And there are obviously tax issues with that. And the tax attorneys, I understand, can help analyze based on how your royalty streams work between the operating company and the holding companies and the intercompany transfers. You know, locating the holding company in Ireland, for example, or locating in Turks and Caicos or wherever may have tax advantages in the overall scheme of the country company. But that's that gets into some very, very dynamic decisions. And, and the interesting thing is, at least from the IP practice, our IP practice, we, the client will want to assert a certain IP asset. And when we get down into the details to get ready to do that, we find out that the tax department has moved that asset around the company, and we don't really know who owns it at this point in time. Oh. And that can have some ramifications on who's entitled to damages and who can't claim damages. So, you know, that's just another example of, you know, everybody needs to know what everybody's doing because you, there can be unintended consequences. Sure, sure. Well, Al, I really appreciate this. You sharing your IP, some of your IP wisdom, and in particular, spending some time talking about the ramifications of or dynamics as it relates to international commerce. So I really appreciate you going through that. Is there anything we didn't cover that you think that we should have talked about? Is there anything that comes to mind? You know, I, I don't think so, David. I just think I, I want your your listeners to realize that, you know, IP can be a very beneficial aspect of their business, and it can also be 
a very detrimental aspect of their business if they get caught unaware. So just know that there are protections available and, and analyses available to help smooth the waters when they are exporting products and services outside the United States. Okay. So if a company, if this sparks some interest with some of our listeners, what's the process by which they'd want to explore a relationship with you and your firm? Just well, we're give on you a the call website. Or? Okay. Yeah, just give us a call. We're on the website, Al Deaver, Bob McCon, McCon Deaver is our law firm. Yeah. So just uh, we're ready, willing, and able to see if we can help anybody. Yeah. And that McCon is spelled M-C capital A-U-G-H-A-N. And then Deaver is D-E-A-V-E-R. Or they could just look you up, Al Deaver, on LinkedIn and be able to uh, go from there. Right. So last question, and this is kind of a fun question that I borrowed from somebody else. So we're in Texas. You're, I'm not a native Texan, but you're closer to a native Texan than I am. I was 13 when I got here and you were four. So X or barbecue? Tex-Mex. Yeah. I had a listener or a guest once that said that they said it depends if I know the, if I know the product is going to be world-class, then I would take the barbecue. They said, if I knew, if all I knew was that the food was going to be good, like better than average, I'd take the Tex-Mex because their theory was Tex-Mex has more tolerance for imperfection (laughs) than does barbecue. Anytime you have food paired with a margarita, I'm there. (laughs) Understood. Understood. Well, Al, I really appreciate you making time to to be on the show. Some really great information here and really some things for our listeners and clients to think about. So thanks again for being on the show. David, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-disc show.com and we have additional information on the podcast archived episodes as well as a button to be a guest so if you'd like to be a guest go select that and fill out the information and we'd love to have you on the show so that's it we'll be back next time with another episode of the ic disc show